Hello, I'm Peter Kafka. I'm an editor at Recode, and you're listening to Recode Media, a podcast where I sit down with the most interesting people in media and technology to understand what happens when those two things collide. And I'm Kara Swisher, host of Recode Decode, where Peter got his start. And now you have your own show, so there's going to be no living with you, correct? I had a tantrum, and then I got my way, so yeah, now I'm really (laughs) insufferable. But thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Just, you know, a thanks now and then would be nice. A little card, a little call, stuff like that. I will call weekly. Okay. Um, You guys are listening to this podcast now, so we don't need to tell you how to get to it. We should also tell you that Kara's awesome podcast is continuing, so you should go listen to that. But you already know that as well. Yeah, you can do that at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. And while you're there, after you listen to the episode, leave Peter a review and make it nice. Make it nice. Stars are good. Uh, if you have insulting things to say to me, like other people do, um, Twitter's a great forum for that. Someone uh, mentioned wanting to hit me the other day. Mm, uh, it's not an uncommon me. response. But that's better for Twitter. Apologize. Yeah, that was you. Yeah. All right. So enough shilling. What, who did you talk to this week? You have a fantastic interview with someone I know very well. Carrie, you know everyone. Um, no, him I used to drive home from work at the Washington Post. I actually know him better than most people. Okay. Well, now we should just tell him who it is. It's David Remnick. He edits a little magazine called The New Yorker. We had an awesome conversation. And he's facing all kinds of issues. I mean, the changing magazine landscape, all kinds of stuff like that. And he's you know been very interested in the digital sector for a long time. He's very interested in the digital sector. I harbor uh, a belief, and I said this to him uh, during the interview, that I, I think he still is first and foremost a, a print guy. He likes a magazine. He likes holding it in his hand. Mm-hmm. We discussed that. He disagrees. And it, again, it's a pretty good discussion. Cool. Because they've got kind of an old-timey audience, too. People who do like print, who do enjoy it. They have an aging audience. He made a point of saying that they also have a, an audience that goes out into Brooklyn and might use an iPhone or an iPod to listen to things. <laughs> uh, and to his credit, they have built out a big digital operation. So we talked about all of those things. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Listen in. If we're going to have the most interesting people in the world, why not start with David Remnick? It's edits, great edits to make the, the cut. <laughs> you made the cut. Hi, David. Thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Thanks for letting me join you at your podcast That's studio. right. We're here at the One World Trade Center at our studio. So that's a good place to start. So in addition to editing The New Yorker, in addition to writing stories for The New Yorker, you are now a podcast slash radio host. You guys now have a television show as well? Yes. Via Amazon? That's right. That's beginning in February. Can we just start where you explain to me how your day works, what you do when you get up until you end the day? (laughs) I I cannot figure out how you do all this stuff, literally. Let me just preface this by saying that of the things that you talked about, 96% of it is editing the magazine. Now, the definition of what that is has changed through the years, and we can talk about that, but that's what it is. Writing, I do very little. It's true, really very little, maybe two pieces a year, and I do it on the margins of time, and I don't go to Cape Cod or the Hamptons, or I just don't go on vacation for a variety of reasons. And I also like writing. I like doing it. I, it, it gets me out into the world. and the, You know, I'm in an office most of the time, or I'm in my apartment. And so to get on an airplane and go to Jerusalem or Moscow or Detroit or wherever it is, is not only good for that story, it's... Just get you out in the world more. It, it, you have to do. We're that. not going to call it a vacation because you're out there doing. You went to. It's just you went to Israel for your last. Piece. I did. I did. It was in the West Bank as well. And and it has the value for me. I mean, it wouldn't have worked for William Sean necessarily, or any some of my predecessors or other or colleagues in in doing the same thing that I do. But it works for me and my life and my awareness of the world. I just can't to get it all through the newspaper or online. It, I, 
I'm a reporter at some level, and I have to see things and hear things and meet people that I'm not necessarily seeing and meeting every day. So you've answered one of my questions, which is you do two stories a year, although it seems like it seems like no, you're do, more prolific. You know, that. I might do a comment here or there or something like that, but a really hardcore reported piece where I'm going somewhere and filling notebooks. I, and by the way, I can only do things that are very, very targeted. You know, we have writers here who spend months on things, and it doesn't take them months because they're lazy or slow. It takes them months because that's what it takes. That's how long it takes Sarah Stillman to do the kind of investigative reporting she does, or Jane Mayer, or Rachel Aviv. That's how long it really takes. I can't, would never dream of doing that because it would rob from. But you drop into a piece and say, "Look, I can accomplish this in three weeks yeah. of reporting." And I'll be or, done. or even less sometimes because I'm experienced in that place. I'd only go to if I'm doing foreign reporting. Generally speaking, I only go to two places, and it's places where I, I know people, and it doesn't take me. Two weeks on the ground to figure out where the, you know, the kitchen is. Then that's, you know, Israel, Palestine and Russia. Places right. So you're not starting from scratch there? No, I've been reporting for both of those places yep. for, for decades. So you're doing podcasting. I'm assuming it doesn't take a ton of your time, but it's still more of your time. Well, you're sitting in our studio here this on the 39th floor of One World Trade. And we have five people from WNYC, the, the New York public radio station, who are real pros at this. So we're not inventing this on our own. We're not just throwing a couple of New Yorker people in a room and podcasting. Yep. And by the way, we've been doing podcasts for years. Dorothy Wickenden's been doing the political scene. We have a fiction podcast with Deborah Treisman, who's the fiction editor. But they are kind of narrow cast in their subject, poetry as well with Paul Muldoon. This is something more free-ranging and wide-ranging and ambitious because reporting pieces are involved outside interviews, all kinds of things. And it's done in conjunction with public radio. So that's not a big chunk of your time. So what it's it's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's something. So yeah. what is the remainder of your time? What what does the editor of the New Yorker do hour to hour, day to day? Are you line editing? Are you assigning stories? Are you trying to figure out how to make this work as a business? I assume it's all of the above. All of the above. And, and it, that's in the office and then you go home and you do pretty much the same thing. I just change desks <laughs> and change what I'm wearing. And, um, and here's the most important thing, and this is far, far from some sort of weird conception of false modesty. There are a lot of smart people in the room that I'm working with. Henry Finder and Pam McCarthy and Dan Zalewski and Deborah Tree. All these people are really, really great editors. And they all have their own ideas, and they all have different ideas – from each other and from me. And my way of managing, I hope, at least in my conception, and I'd be interested to hear what they think, is, let's put it this way, more Joe Torrey and less Billy Martin. So you got a team of all-stars working for you. Still a ton of work. But you, but you want to put them in the position where, A, they feel like their ideas are going to have an impact, not just be heard, but make their way into the magazine. And that goes for writers and artists as well. I just don't believe in that notion of the imperial singular editor. I think it's it, – let's just put it this way. It doesn't work for me. So Joe Torrey's job, if he was still managing baseball – Is to go is tell he, Derek Jeter, play shortstop. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that job has changed over the last couple of decades in a dramatic way. You've been doing this for a couple of decades. Has your job That's changed a fair in a significant point. way? That, it, it absolutely has. So William Sean, who edited this magazine for a few decades, and Bob Gottlieb and Tina Brown as well, their job – was to lead a weekly print magazine that came out and that was 
a kind of platonic ideal of what a, what a, a magazine could be in its best conception, both in, in humor and reporting and fiction and all the things that we do and have been in place at least as its DNA from the beginning. You're right. That's changed. Um, the business model has changed. We can talk about all of this. The business model's changed, and that takes concentration and successes and failures and thinking. And we're experimenting with other platforms, other media, and that takes real attention. And, and all those things have to be true to your notion of what the quality of the magazine is. And, of course, the, the, the most consuming one in terms of people and effort on a day-to-day -day basis is the web. So my perception of you, we've talked or you've talked at an event we did in the past. I've listened to you talk. My perception of you is still that you think the most important part of The New Yorker remains the magazine that comes out once a week, really the print version of that magazine, and that while other things like the web are important, they are less no, important. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I think when we began on the web, and maybe this goes back to a conversation we may, we may have had years ago, the web, when it began, first of all, the investment from Condé Nast was tiny. This company, remember, was not in any way a web-first yep. uh, company. I think it's been a long time since it's denied that. And when I was finally able to get a pretty minimalist investment to start a website this is some time ago of course then the next question is why what are you doing here and our answer to that admittedly in the beginning was minimalist which was to say a phrase that you never hear anymore companion site so you're basically right. taking the stuff that was on in print here's some extras and here it is on the web and here are a couple of bells and whistles to all right but that is long in the past now you have that thinking and effort and an application of resources has changed dramatically so that now when we so now when we draw up contracts with writers and understandings with writers it is very 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 rarely just one or the other very rarely it's almost always you're going to do this in terms of projects that take you a long time and of course those appear both and here are things that you're going to do We'll try to plan in advance, at least roughly, what you're going to do for the web. And something you do on the web has equal value as something you put in the magazine? Look, I think a reader reads us online, and, and it's The New Yorker. I agree, by it's the way. The New but Yorker. I think in most, especially publications like this or The Times, where everyone sort of gets intellectually that's not the case anymore, that the readers are Increasingly, I would agree with that premise. But that the, the masthead is still really the value. You get most rewarded at The Times for getting a page one story, even though the reader has no idea it's on page one. The reader does have some indication. Even when you're getting it from social media, a fairly sophisticated reader gets, in terms of length and yeah. play and number of photographs, there are cues that also indicate that. But what's interesting is that very, very often the things that get an enormous amount of attention, meaning traffic and length of time spent on the story, are the things that appeared in print as well. Right. I think there are a lot of readers, I know there are a lot of readers, that are fluid in the way they're using The New Yorker. They're paying their subscription price. They get it in all ways. And they're reading it on the phone as they, you know, in the subway or whoever they're getting here. Or then at night they have a print copy. I, I frankly, I don't care how they're – I care and I don't care. Um, the battle has been – there are a number of them – was to change not only the culture of the place to make the web deeply valued and understood, but to change the internal culture of a lot of writers – so that writers who had their notion of what they're going to do in the course of the years or write, say, three long pieces, now have come to see many, many of them. Ah, but and if I write X number of web pieces, shorter things that might may take me a day, or 
that has enormous value. I thought it was very exciting when uh, my timeline's a little off. I think about a year ago when, when uh, Jill Abramson was deposed at the Times, Canaletta did several mm-hmm. stories which were actually breaking news about it. He said, I'm going out and doing reporting, and I'm going to report it more or less in real time. It was a big deal. And, and for media and it, nerds like me, it was a real and thrill And it came to out that. in bits. In, in yeah. other words, in, in New Yorker terms, if, if that same story had happened uh, a good while before that, the information would have gathered and your understanding of what had happened or didn't happen would have deepened and then you would have written it, would have been it all at a once. a definitive story. This exactly. is what happened. Here in that particular instance, because it was happening so fast and quite frankly, there was so much interest in it, it came out in bits. Was, do you think Canaletta was comfortable sort of saying, all right, well, this, this story's changed. What I've learned, I've learned, here's new information, which maybe contradicts what I just heard a week ago. Yeah, I think as, as we get more and more sophisticated about this as writers and readers – that a certain amount of transparency about that process, if it's happening that fast, is advisable. Because if you pretend to definitiveness on Tuesday and then everything changes on Wednesday, well, you not only look like an idiot, but your credibility diminishes. I, I like the idea of definitiveness changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben Bradley used to say that journalism as such is just the, you know, the first rough draft of history yeah. anyway. So if you think that your 10,000-word piece on uh, refugees in Jordan is definitive forever, you're a fool. I want to ask about business models and stuff like that. Sure. I want to take a quick second to tell folks, speaking of business models, about the Code Media Conference. If you're listening to this on the day it came out, it means you're not at Code Media 2016, which means you've missed out. The good news is you're going to be able to read all about it on our website, see videos, all at recode.net. Um, amazing guest, David, did a version of this conference was before. Fun. You should check it out. Um, again, recode.net. You're smart. You can figure out the web, so you'll figure out the exact address. Back to David. It seems to me that there were always two big questions about magazines, like for the New Yorker specifically, but magazines like the New Yorker, which was, what's the business model going to mm. be? How, who's going to pay for this? And then there's a second question, which is, what's the nature of a magazine in 2016? It seems to me that you've solved or have come to a conclusion on the first question, which is, I'm going to pay for it. Readers are increasingly going to be part, asked to pay. In, but, in but, greater but, part than before. Greater part. You're, the cover price for The New Yorker is 8 bucks. I think. The cover price is let, – let's face it. The cover price is great and I hope more and more people buy it on the newsstand and the win. But the real thing is the subscription. Right, which has gone up considerably. It has gone up and there's no secret about it. When I started, it was – you could easily find it for $20, $25. And it's true. I've been here for 17 years. But the rise is we're now you know, we're in $100. And, and you're comfortable asking readers to absolutely, pay Absolutely. But I have to pay off on my end of the bargain. It's very simple, Peter. And it's the same with the New York Times. New York Times is very expensive. Uh, Wall Street Journal is very expensive. What we are saying is this, and if we're not true to it, there's not a huge future. And I'm not interested in having one in, in a certain sense. We are telling the reader, this is something of enormous value that we pour our hearts and souls into to make accurate and beautiful and deep, and we're paying writers well and artists, and this is a not an ephemeral thing. This is not just one more brief opinion on the passing ephemera of life. This is something of real value, and you can't get easily anywhere else. As the ad market, and there's a perception the ad market overall is fraught, and there's a race to the bottom in terms of what you're going to pay for an eyeball, especially online. Well, some huge amount of the ad market is gobbled up by four what is it, three companies, Google being foremost among them. Right. I mean, it's changed radically. So as that starts to shrink and there's more pressure on advertising, do you assume that you're going to ask readers to pay more and more of that cost? I think we've asked a lot of them already. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not out to make the readers sweat, but what I'm asking after all, if it's $100 a year is, and I know I've used this metaphor before and forgive me, but it's less than a cup of coffee. 
Yeah, there's a lot of people asking for cups of coffee now. Netflix wants your cup of coffee. Damn Hulu right. And, and you know what? Your other peers are going to ask for more. That's true. But if the New Yorker is worth it, they'll pay for it. If it's not, over time, nothing good will happen. So I, and I, my gamble, my efforts, and those of my colleagues, is that we are good to that effort. So the business model seems fairly And by the simple. way, there is advertising. Yep. There, there is significant advertising, and there's more and more of it online. But as you know, a- advertising online does not reap the same benefits as it did in the heyday of print advertising. So that's shrinking. And we, all right. So we sort of figured that out for now. We know what's going to happen there. To me, the, the really big question is what's the point of a magazine in 2016 when people are – and you can pick whatever the delivery device is – your phone or whether it's a the platform The reader is going to pick the delivery device. But, We're going to stay up to date as best we can on the delivery devices that technology provides. Print, phone, iPad, laptop, desktop. Clearly the iPad, you know, there was greater enthusiasm about the iPad uh, X years ago than there is now. The iPad may have We'll see. Right. I mean, you're the th- expert th- on there this. there was a thought from magazine publishers, oh, the this Salvation is going to fix it. And by the way, we're going to just take the existing model, which is this magazine that came out once a week, and Correct. we'll more or less move it onto this device. I think that's fair. It seems pre- pretty clear that that's going to have limited effect. And the, and the thing that I'm trying to get to is it seems like a lot of people, certainly myself, but I think even regular humans, are increasingly getting their stuff in bits and pieces. Facebook is giving them a story at a time. Their friends are emailing them a story. And for a magazine that in many ways I think prides itself on saying, here, we've collected all the great stuff in the last week. Here it is. Consume it. How do you how do you grapple with a world in which people are sort of dipping in and out? I, I have to assume, Peter, that all of the things that we're discussing are fluid. And we cannot predict everything with any accuracy at all. Let me put one of the whammies into it. And I, and I don't say this in any old guy, atavistic, anti-tech way at all. But the fact remains that our print subscribers remain huge. They have not dipped. Even as the website has now gone up to 16 million uniques a month, for whatever reason, because print to a lot of people is a good technology – you know, there's a difference between the print technology of the Sunday Times and the print technology of an, an issue of the New Yorker. The print technology of the of the Sunday Times, for me as a consumer, is a mess. Is it fair to say that you, your print subscribers are an aging demographic? You would think so automatically. But when I'm on the subway, and, you know, I, I know the limits of anecdote. When I'm on the subway, I see headed out to Brooklyn, where my demographic is a good deal younger. Endless numbers of people are holding in their hands a print issue of The New Yorker. And my I have to admit, my heart sinks as a result because I can see what they're reading. Look at what's happened in the book industry. X years ago, we thought it's all going to be digital. Books, you know, books, yep. books are going to die. And the book publishing industry was freaked out for all the reasons we know. Something in the middle happened. Not that something in the middle is always going to happen, but in their case, something in the middle happened. And what is it? Well, romance novels are consumed on Kindles. Books that you want to be seen having yep. <laughs> are selling in hard copies and in paperback. So the book format has remained, remained pretty sturdy, but it seems – Now, but, but everybody was freaked about it yeah. five years ago. But for magazines, you know, I know what the What I'm saying, I, and, and I know yeah. it's the worst thing you could ever say when you're asked a serious question by a serious person is, I don't know the precise answer. All I can be – is alert to the way the readers want to consume what we do. Now, what you're, one of the things that you're talking about here is disaggregation. 
That's already – I cannot control the whole media and technological world in the interests of The New Yorker. I have to adapt to it and figure it out as they come. What about saying, hey, you tech guy, you want to read this Mark Andreessen piece we put together? It's awesome. We're not going to let you see it for free. Um, but we also realize you don't want to pay us X amount I for don't. subscription. I don't. Can you, can, you, can you sell me that as a per read? You, you're talking about the Facebook model with the instant articles and things like well, that. Well, Facebook is still free, right? But would you, would you just say, look, no, but I'll, instant I will art- sell you instant, this article. Instant, instant articles, for example, is problematic. And I, I, you know, people at the Times, you know, they have their foot in that, but they are not a little wary of it. You can Every, be everyone, absolutely. Everyone's wary. Of, They've all of kind of course. capitulated. But no, you. But you say, look, it's not free. You got to pay for it. I will sell you this Mark Andreessen article for a dollar or fifty cents. Are you? Are you we haven't that gone model? that route. Don't we, go I, there. Well, to some extent, Peter, there's no extent that the world is going to tell me what I can do with, you know, how cautious, how radical a change. It's not completely in our hands. If you don't admit that, you're a dope. But so far, you know, I think the experience of The New Yorker is enhanced by the whole. Somebody might find that a vanity. I actually think it's true that that this weird, to my mind, magical formula of a whole that encompasses gag cartoons, serious commentary, cultural coverage, all the elements that are The New Yorker, um, the covers covers, which is, a, you know, after all, what is a cover in the digital world? Trust me, I'm putting a whole package together. It's like a movie. Follow me. I'm going to deliver something. Or a meal or whatever your metaphor is. Yes. Can we talk a bit about uh, your parent company? You don't run it. So obviously there's a limit to what you can say. As we're talking, it's a couple days after there was a big Times article that mm-hmm. was a bit about Anna Wintour, a lot about Condé Nast. Uh, the general sort of gestalt is, hey, Condé Nast is kind of teetering or they're on the edge of something and no one's quite sure what's going to happen. What's, I don't ha- think Condé Nast is teetering. I think, I think what's happening at Condé Nast is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. Happen, the, the, the piece was in the New York Times. you damn sure it's happening at the New York Times, which is to say, how do we deal with all the trends we've been talking about before? How can we, we be realistic about it and yet create something vital and alive and beautiful? What does it mean to us editorially? What does it mean to our business? And the, the added factor at Condé Nast is this, and this is what the article tried to get at, which is that you went from a model of a company for years and years and years run by its owner who had a deep editorial experience and interests and now to a more traditional model where you have a a business run by somebody who's primarily a business person, Bob Came up from marketing. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, as does – where does Mark Thompson come from? Where, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. These are business people. No, there was a very New York Times attitude about it. And there was a great line here I wanted to quote here. Go it said, it said to talk to people who, in and out of the company who lamented a focus on the bottom line and the relentless pursuit I'm, of web I'm, traffic. I have to tell you, I'm glad somebody has got a focus on the bottom so line. So you're okay with the bottom line. You get that this is a for-profit the business. Health, look, I am blessed – but, you know, parts of my life have, are not blessed like any life, and part of it is blessed. The huge blessing of working at a place where writers can get on airplanes and write with freedom and no interference, and the editor is making all the editorial decisions, and no publisher or, and no owner is calling me up and saying, you know, I have a friend and you ought to give him good treatment, or you really ought to be a little nicer to the Koch brothers or whatever the hell. I, that, that not a scintilla of this has ever happened both under Cy Newhouse or Chuck Townsend and Bob Sauerberg. Never. That, after all, for an editor, and I think for the Republic, <laughs> by the way, 
is the ultimate gift uh, executives and uh, not gift, uh, right, way of being. Have you gone to the current management and said, I'd like some assurance that we're good for five years or 10 years or we're set? They've shuttered magazines recently. They're cutting costs. Do you have any assurance? We're a profitable magazine. We're profitable enterprise. Then you're the whole of us is is quite profitable and has been so for for quite, you know, we, it's no big secret. The magazine was hugely profitable for a long time. It began to dip, as so many other things did in the, say, the 80s. And then there was a change of ownership. And then, you know, you're spending a lot in order to recover. And it's we've been very – I've been an editor for 17 years. We've been profitable for a very long time, a very long time. Can you imagine this property existing outside of County Nast? It, well, it did once. Yeah. If I don't want it to, but it, like it, it used to, Yes, I look. What can I ask for from an ownership? I, I look. We're in a building. We have great views. That's not the primary value. The primary value is editorial freedom, and the capacity to do something great. What more can I ask for? Did the uh, watching the travails of the New Republic, which is a very different magazine, but used to get sort of in the same bucket of the New Yorker, has. Have you taken anything away from that? It's crazy to call it in the same bucket. I, I have great respect for, for – And the reason and, why is they were considered sort of things that you would read if you were of a certain social status. They weren't things that you that you owned to make money. But in a different category of magazine, this is, this is many things. But the, the New Republic is more analogous to The Nation uh, or The National Review or – you know, Little magazine. Well, was the, political was opinion magazines, yes. whatever the ideology – and the business model for those magazines for the last century is basically you're owned by somebody wealthy who's willing to lose a couple million dollars a year. And what this episode should tell all of us, especially in, in my business, is how even – I'm not saying the New Republic is ever perfect and you know there were all kinds of faults that you could point to and uh, Marty Peretz was hardly a perfect person and there were real problems with him. In, in, in many ways. But let's leave that aside. The fragility of an institution, it can all go like that. If something is owned heedlessly, if it's dealt with heedlessly, um, carelessly, you can suddenly find yourself in a state of ruin. And that's why you're comfortable with the focus on the bottom line, because it gives you some sort of stability. Well, I, I don't want you to think that I'm sitting here with a green eye shade. I, I didn't get into this activity of journalism to be a, a business person. But if I ignore business and if I ignore the financial health of The New Yorker, there's not going to be journalism to be had at The New Yorker. We spent a lot of time talking about business. Let's talk about journalism for a minute. Sure. My old boss, Henry Blodgett, both before and after he sold his company, uh, says this is a golden age of journalism. This is his sort of, you know, I'm going to yeah. stick a finger in the eye of the naysayers to say it's all a race to the bottom. We can get more media and more information at any time. Does that argument make sense to you? Yes and no. I think there are things now that are new that are terrific. I was just at the National Magazine Awards the other night, and suddenly some new things. My colleagues at Eater won an award. That's a big deal. Uh, that was awesome. Um, the Intercept got an award. They had a tough day the next day, but they, they, they won an award for a really good project. There were a number of things that, that were either new or newish on the scene, and we're making BuzzFeed had a terrific investigative piece win 
uh, an award, Shawnee Hilton, Ben Smith. You know, they do stuff there that's obviously um, not exactly the second coming of Woodward and Bernstein, you know. And you guys have cartoons. Ford, so we'll, well, we'll we, we do. We do. But I think they're doing some serious work, and that's really encouraging. And I, I don't mean that in a patronizing way at all. I think it's really encouraging. But there's a but coming? Here's where I worry. One of the areas of life that's gotten wiped out, wiped out, is local provincial journalism. So I grew up in Jersey. Every mayor of Newark, I think, I think, went to jail until, until very recently. Ken Gibson, Uadnesio, all those guys. They all went to jail. And why they go to jail? It wasn't because of their incredible, aggressive self-pursuit. A big role of that is played by the local press, the old Newark News, Newark Star-Ledger, whatever it is. And this is this pattern all over the country. Now, if those places suddenly dwindle, if you stop seeing aggressive, investigative journalism at the level of not just the New York Times. I'm not that worried about the The New York Times, to me, is destined, is doomed to succeed. It's going to be hard. There's going to be all kinds of travails and... So it works well for national And papers. I think the New Yorker is same thing. It works same well bucket. for certain niche tech guys are very well covered. How do you covered. do it? It's, right. It's, when it's, scale is lost right. and local advertising has been wiped out for all the reasons and Craigslist did its bit, what's going to happen there? Who's going to send the corrupt judge to jail in second and third tier cities? I don't know. Yeah, and the, it was a local Jersey paper that broke Bridgegate, but you see less of that now. And you I think, do. I think the Flint story, right, is no one really covered that adequately for a long time. We're all no, just the New York Times, it. Wall Street Journal, even the New Yorker, it just can't do everything. And and there there was this freakish extended period in American history where you had a provincial press. And by the way, I don't want for a minute to have to defend the crap that that old traditional papers also published or sensationalism, or sometimes corrupt papers in many ways. But I'm talking about the best of it. And, and if that's lost and it's not replaced by something in the, some way, the digital space, that's a loss. What's the most difficult thing you've done journalistically at The New Yorker in the last year or so? What was the hardest story to sort of pull off and execute? The, the, the hardest story to pull off and execute for the writer or for editing? For, or? for your entire staff. What sort of required the most energy or nerve or – you tell me. What's, is there one that sticks out? doesn't sound like there is. You know, I think one of the more complicated stories that we had to deal with, both in terms of public perception and editing, is something like Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson was the cop in Ferguson, Missouri, who uh, shot a young guy. The white cop. He's a white cop. And uh, clearly you had institutional racism in Ferguson and in its police force and in its politics. And the criticism was he humanized him. The criticism was but the very act of writing about him, even though he had written endlessly about all, all kind, I mean, this one thing that the New Yorker is not guilty of is, is somehow ignoring race as a subject or um, even in the last 18 months, two years where this has been a a horrific series of events, although I think it's mainly, there's always been the serious events. A lot of it has to do with our knowledge of them, our camera phones and, and publicity around them. It's always been a terrible thing. That was delicate, but I think, I think the editor involved, uh, the lead editor there, Dan Zaleski, did a masterful job of being fair. And so it was interesting to me, 
I, Did you I, talk about that in advance? We know course. we're going to get criticism, of and then, co- and, then in, and then in retrospect, you say, right, "Is there a way that maybe some of that criticism is valid?" Or I think you- sometimes you have to do the best you possibly can, be as aware as you can in advance, and listen to the criticism and and take it on board for the next time around. But in in this case, you know, it was interesting. I I signed onto Twitter in the morning, which may or may not be a brilliant idea in a case like this, and I saw that we were getting hammered in some quarters. DeRay McKesson, one of the Black Lives Matter leaders, was particularly tough on it. And then clearly what happened by later in the day, the piece got read. And it wasn't just a kind of... Then the arguments became more complicated, less vitriolic, more interesting, and something else happened. You remember, Reader picks up the magazine. We're in an emotional time for good reason. And there's this picture of Darren Wilson. And you're seeing it without reading it, that's a profile of him. If you then read it, it's a much, much more nuanced story than that. Um, to my mind, Darren Wilson damns himself 60 times over with his own words. And the context of what had been happening and has happened in Ferguson was was quite there. I was very surprised to hear you say you got up in the morning and checked Twitter because I've, I've heard you many times. I look at Twitter all the time. This is what, this you is you is don't a, like to tweet. It's a time waster, but you'll read it. I read it. I use it as a reporter. In some ways, it's better than Google. I look at it to see any number of things. Follow stories. You know, the Iowa caucuses. I got to have Twitter going. I've just seen that people who have jobs like mine, who tweet, fall into two ruts. Let's let's put aside the time. First of all, I have plenty of platforms as a writer, as an editor, talking with you, talking with you. And not everybody has that, to say the least. And I think it's a great democratizing thing. It's one of its... I think it's a wonderful technology. But people with jobs like mine, very often they'll do two things. A, they start promoting stories and things in their own publication like crazy, and it's tedious. It's and tedious. less effective than they think. Of course. Within 10 seconds, nobody's paying attention to them. And then you see the fall off. I, you know, one editor, I think Dean Becquet, or maybe it was Jill Abramson, I forget. They tweet like crazy for two weeks, and then they see the folly of it, and then there's three months in between each tweet, and then they... Suddenly or, or they say something they really wish they hadn't said. That's the other one. So then you then you have the two o'clock in the morning tweet, and you can't take it back. And then you spend the next week cleaning up after the elephant, who is you yourself or the elephant. Do I need this? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. But you, you don't mind lurking, watching. Reading. Lurking sounds ultra creepy. Yeah, yeah, sure. But you're no, I I, I read it a lot. Fair enough. I want to say one last thing, which is thank you. Um, you do a lot Total of great pleasure. things. But I want to thank you specifically for a book, King of the World, you wrote about Muhammad oh, Ali. Thanks a lot. I'm not a fight person, not really a Muhammad Ali person. Um, I read it years ago uh, when I was sort of in a weird funk, and it, it drew me through some stuff, and it's oh, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. And I want to highly recommend it. I'm assuming it's still in print. God, um, I hope now so. that I'm done plugging your, your work, <laughs> I want to say thank you again, and I'm going to plug my own. Um, if you guys like listening to this, you should subscribe. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it at recode.net slash media podcast. Um, we have more podcasts coming for you. They're all free. Uh, my boss, Kara Swisher, has a show called Recode Decode. Every Monday, she and Lauren Good do a show called Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every Friday, Recode Replay has all our old uh, conference material, just like Code Media 2016. You can subscribe to all of it for free for you. I'll be back here next week with another great guest. See you then. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Find your voice.